Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is Volume 3, 1990 to 1999, Episode 67, Scream. A slasher horror movie that sort of revived the concept of slasher horror movies as as a mystery killer. Never said out loud to be called this, but called Ghostface. Phones people, home invades, stabs people and terrorises particularly Sydney Prescott. I am here to talk about it. My name is Matt Waters, but I'm not here to talk about it alone, because I'm joined by Ben Phillips. Ben, happy Halloween. Halloween, it's it's spooky season, and I'm watching spooky movies all week, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it won't be Halloween when this is released, but it is Halloween when we're recording. So, there you go. We didn't plan for an upcoming movie to be the episode number it is and we didn't plan to record the scary movie on halloween but here we are speaking of scary movie i was fucked up to learn that the title of this movie right up until they wrapped because the cast got gifts that said scary movie on them uh (laughs) it was originally called scary movie and then they changed it to scream and then you get the parody series scary movie which as until next year actually has more entries than scream itself five versus four for now but next year there will be a new scream and they will tie can't say i have massively high hopes for a rebooted scream but you never know horror I mean, has been back coming back so I mean, obviously the the, the the worrying thing is like west craven's been dead for six years at this point so this <laughs> yeah. is this is the first time the franchise doesn't have him at the helm i mean yes but have you seen scream three I've, I've seen no Screams other than this first one. Interesting. Right, Scream 2, good, not as good. Scream 3, terrible. Scream 4, better than Scream 3, not as good as the first two. Have not seen the TV show. Scream 2 is, is like... I It lacks a it's certain like a something. It's later, isn't it? It's yeah, like yeah, literally yeah. like, this movie comes out one December, and then the next Halloween, they're yeah. ready for like Scream 2 to be out. Yeah, yeah. Made it very quickly, got everyone back immediately. Well, the survivors, anyway. Everyone um, could it. <laughs> yeah, I would actually say it's probably a little bit scarier, but it, it lacks that certain something that, you know, you can't just come out of the blue a second time, you know, in the way that Scream did. So I would right. recommend Scream 2 and then just maybe just stop. My, my knowledge of Scream 2 is more or less that like, the script leak and they had to change who the killer was at the last minute. And so like there's like seven characters who at various points in the movie were the killer, which yeah. I guess also works for this movie in that you could argue... Like there is an argument you can make because the movie doesn't... It, yes, it's a whodunit, but it's not in a way where you could actually figure out who the killer was beforehand apart from... Matthew Lillard's going to get beers and then not freaking out that his girlfriend is crushed in the garage door. I mean, he does try and fake it by emerging stabbed and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It, on the one hand, if you call it a whodunit, like, up front, you basically spend the entire movie assess- weighing up each person and being like, it's you. No, it's you. No, it's you. But, like, if you don't do that, if, if you unmask Ghostface and it's just some dude... That's incredibly disappointing. <laughs> Whereas, you know, most movies like this, it is some kind of known entity, and it's like they are all they like. There is a person underneath the Michael Myers mask, but it's kind of inconsequential. Like he might as well that might as well just be his face. Likewise, Jason, etc., etc. Like they are just what they are. 
I, I mean, it's not, this isn't the only movie in history where it's, like, a person under the mask, but, like, you know, it, it was a little bit different compared to the ones that, like, truly stand up. It tends to be some recurring supernatural yeah, person. There's, there's, I mean, I mean, obviously, Halloween, there is a personal relationship to the killer, yeah. but that isn't really established until the sequels. It's not really yeah. in the first one. But more often than not, it is people put into a situation where they piss off some kind of supernatural being that decides yeah. to go on a killing spree. Like, very rarely in every single movie is there a personal relationship between the killer and the, the, the victims. And not, and to, like, sp- not this... to spoil Screams 2 through 4 for you, but uh, there is generally always some kind of tie back to Sydney in some way, shape, or form. Well, I mean, because obviously, like, I think... Obviously, I'm not going to be the first person to say this, but it does feel like a very big... Because obviously, this movie is playing on classic horror movie tropes in yes. terms of like, I mean, the, the, the whole movie is a metatextual reference to the rules of a horror movie. Mm-hmm. But like, it does have a little bit of Scooby-Doo to it. <laughs> yes. I, when I said like, when I was sort of doing my little spiel about, and there's a person under that costume, in my head when I said that, I imagined it as a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> yeah, which, which makes it funnier because obviously Matthew Lillard goes on to play yeah. Shaggy and has been playing Shaggy for like the last 20 years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, incredible um, work here, though. So, like, this for, I, this is chosen by both of us. I have f- fond memories of this being, you know, everyone has, like, the first horror movie they watched too young kind of thing. <laughs> and I vividly remember my, my next-door neighbour was a few years older than me, and he used to show me stuff I shouldn't see. Um, and, like, you know, I played Mortal Kombat on the Mega Drive with him, and also the Genesis, if you're in America. Dumb name. Yeah, and I watched Scream at age, I don't know, younger than you should be to watch Scream. Uh, so it's like, I generally say, and I have said on this podcast, I think, I don't like horror movies. But there was definitely an era where I loved them. Like I, I love Scream and Halloween and, to an extent, Friday the 13th and, and stuff like that. It's they kind of lost me in the sort of post two thousands where it all became jump scares, and there's I don't know there's sort of a a charm and a and a <laughs> I don't know a certain sense of something. To... Well, do, do do we want to go into like what the the history of horror movies looks like because it is interesting and um, if you want like a, a proper deep dive mm. into like actual horror movie history, uh, Blank Check's episode on Halloween they released this year is mm. basically three hours long an hour and a half of that is analysing where horror movies get to in the run up to Halloween. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, like I said at the beginning, like Scream is credited with reviving the concept of the slasher movie. It is still to this day, if you adjust for inflation the highest grossing slasher movie ever. Um, I think Halloween Kills or, or, or like, no, like the 2018 Halloween or one of the rebooted Halloweens made more money. But if you, if you change 90s money for current money, then Scream still outdid it. But yeah, like that as a genre was dead in the water. Horror was very much straight to video, like, Ninth entry in a in a long dead franchise kind yeah. of shit. <laughs> it was this is this like because obviously the slash movie kind of comes like there's slash movies before Halloween, but Halloween is kind of the big. Yeah, this is where slash has become a big deal. Like a lot of the stuff before Halloween is kind of more exploitation movies. It's more stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is like yeah. let's take someone and put them into rural backwaters and have some kind of supernatural entity chase them. And Halloween makes a decision to let's 
change this from being something that would never happen to you to putting it in a location yeah. where this could happen to you. Like this takes place in a suburb. Like mm-hmm. you could have someone chase you around and try and murder you because you're a woman or whatever. Yeah, and, and, it, I, and I think the home invasion aspect can't be overlooked either. Like it seems like an obvious thing, but there isn't. You know, it tends to be, like you said, people are going to a location that they shouldn't have gone to, man. Versus, like, you're just trying to live your everyday life and boom, someone's, like, broken into your house and murders you. And then, uh, basically, Halloween is so profitable. I think it is, like, still one of the most profitable movies ever made just because of how cheap it was to make it at the time. And <laughs> it's 1970s money, which is even more yeah. <laughs> when you get to this point. And then, basically, you get this kind of... Like, obviously, the most famous ones are the movies that are playing off of the Mike Myers type and it's like Michael. Jason Voorhees and and Chucky and Pinhead and yeah. like all, all those kind of like very famous slashers come out in the in the wake of those movies and it's those ones that kind of kill the genre dead because it's like they release one, two, three, four movies in a cinema and yeah. then across the 80s they go like well we're going to do them direct DVD Leprechaun in the hood yeah, you release so many sequels, you release so many movies that are riffing on this kind of thing, yeah. that by the end of the movies, everyone's kind of like, no, we're sick of this. And yeah. I, I, I don't know where horror goes in the early 90s. My knowledge of like early 90s horror is bare. Like I've watched, at the, at the moment, I've been watching a lot of Wes Craven and John Carpenter. So yeah. like I did Nightmare on Elm Street, which is obviously another one of those huge seminal, yeah. this comes in after Halloween to kind of like riff on the same same kind of idea, but with a little bit more supernatural element. And then I did New Nightmare, which is obviously Wes Craven's movie directly before Scream, which is another metatextual re-examining of slasher movies from the 90s, mm-hmm. but in a in a far more, like, we're making a movie way, which I feel like the Scream sequels kind of touch on. <laughs> they do. There is, a, there is a movie within a movie, which they do vaguely allude to as a concept in Scream 1, and that, like, right down to... Sid is like, oh no, in my luck it'll be Tori Spelling, and then Tori Spelling does play her in the fictional movie Stab in Scream 2. <laughs> and then like Scream 3 is entirely on the set of a new Stab movie, and like they're killing, like a new Ghostface is killing the actors, and then I, th- I think Scream 4 obviously sets several years later, and it's like Stab 7 has just come out, and it's like, now you're dealing with the rules of a reboot, or whatever. <laughs> Or a remake or something like that. I can only imagine they will do something similar with the new one. Like yeah, These are the rules when you're reviving a 20-year-old franchise. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting because in 1994, kind of the two biggest touchstones for this movie are Wes Craven, who obviously directed this and did Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. and John Carpenter, whose Halloween is referenced all throughout the final act of this movie. I mean, they're just straight up playing the soundtrack, <laughs> and like it's just on the TV rolling in the background. And you have Jamie Kennedy say, telling Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie, look behind you, while a killer is behind him. <laughs> Which is all fantastic stuff. Yeah, and fantastic. yeah, you, you have Tatum saying, oh, it sounds like a Wes Carpenter movie or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and in 1994, both of them release very metatextual text so mm-hmm. as i said like you've got new nightmare which is literally on the 10th anniversary of nightmare on elm street they're thinking about making a reboot but it's all about a demon inhabiting the spirit of freddy krueger and trying to cross over into the real world uh-huh. um, which is genuinely a, a really fascinating concept that i wish they did more with ultimately but like there's a, a good 40 minute section of that movie which is genuinely fantastic and kind of rivals where Scream gets to in terms of its, its tension and its, mm. its bashedness. Yeah. And then you've got John Carpenter who's got In the Mouth of Madness which is the Sam mm. Neill one which is kind of more of a takedown of H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King but it's still all about like 
horror movies bleeding into reality and being metatextual in terms of those ways. And so it's yeah. obvious that, that the horror genre has got more introspective mm. after the 80s. Yeah, and, so, and you'll, you'll end up with like Cabin in the Woods a decade after this and stuff like that. And it is yeah. it is interesting that like in the world of a horror movie, horror movies don't exist, you know, like, and, it, <laughs> and for this to straight up, like, let's run through all the big ones, including one made by the director of this movie, which fucks people up, and, and you know, these are the rules, and in Scream 2, it's like, these are the rules of a sequel, and then Scream 3, these are the rules of a trilogy, and, and, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, it, it really is just weird to hear people acknowledging that scary movies exist. Yeah, it's, it's the dumbest thing about zombie movies at this point, is that, like, obviously there are zombie movies that now go out their way to call them zombies, but so often mm. they're not, they're like, well, we'll imagine that the word zombie doesn't exist in this lexicon and exactly. so they have to come up with a new word to describe this this phenomenon. Yeah, as if like a zombie as a concept hasn't been a thing you've heard of since you were a small child and hasn't existed throughout. Like, I mean, zombie as a word, maybe not, but the, the idea of like the living dead is like as old as anything. So, like, yeah, very silly. As you said, directed by Wes Craven. Busy 90s for him. People Under the Stairs, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, as you said. Vampire in Brooklyn, Scream 2, Music of the Heart obviously got you know gets his reputation off the back of last house on the left hills have eyes nightmare on elm street swamp thing that thing is he's got he's got such a weird career because obviously he starts off more in the exploitation kind of mm. genre like i think last house on the left was literally originally a porn script <laughs> that then turned into like a horror movie i think there was the horror yeah. movie mutilation elements to it but like originally it was going to hire actors who were going to have like full sex on screen right and then backed away from it ultimately so he's he's dealing in that kind of like that real schlocky this is never going to play in like a real cinema yeah. kind of thing I mean, it is that kind of thing where it's like, look, you're already going to get a high age rating for your violence. You might as well throw some tits in there. Like, and, that, and you literally have it called out of, like, obligatory tit shot, and then you cut to Neve Campbell taking her shirt off in the bedroom and stuff like that. Cabin in the Woods takes a step further because Neve Campbell's obviously got a good nudity contract in her yes. uh, in her in her clause, so she never actually like gets topless or anything. But then yeah. Cabin in the Woods is like, when they when they say, oh, we need to show some skin, they they show some skin. Go, Yellow Power Ranger. <laughs> we'll talk about Neve Campbell and and what how she would have a no nudity contract versus people in other horror movies that don't in a moment. It is written by Kevin Williamson, who my god, so in a in a short span, so Scream is his first ever script, which fucks me up. And uh, on the one hand, he goes on to write, "I know what you did last summer, the faculty cursed," but then also creates Dawson's Creek, Vampire Diaries, Stalker, etc. I mean, you can kind of see. You just take the stabber stuff out and do all the dumb hangout stuff and you've got Dawson's Creek. <laughs> Put some of it back in, you've got Vampire Diaries. <laughs> but yeah, like he is a, obviously a huge horror fan. This is a, an homage to his love of horror. It is partially inspired by the Gainesville Ripper murders. And he, he said he was like staying in a house and like he found a window was open and it really freaked him out that like anyone could have, have gotten in or whatever. And he writes a quick treatment... Um, to try and get, like, a paycheck, you know, struggling screenwriter, aspiring screenwriter and everything. Writes outlines for sequels, which is how you end up having Scream 2 less than a year later. But he found himself, like, inadvertently pouring more into it than one would expect for a sort of cash-grab script. And it ends up this huge bidding war, Oliver Stone almost gets it. Wes Craven sort of comes in and out of the project is because he's very busy. They approach Robert Rodriguez, Danny Boyle, George A. Romero, Sam Raimi. Williamson claims none of them ever understood it. 
because the tone is strange and like showing it to someone for the first time as I did last night like it is very like wait what <laughs> like why is this yeah, like, so strange there's the story that's come out this week I believe which was basically uh, Ski Ulrich kind of going like when I was on set for the first time with Matthew Lillard and Jamie Kennedy and they were making jokes and being funny I was very confused about why they were doing that because he and his mind thought that this was a very mm. straight movie about a man going insane yeah. and like going on a killing spree and like didn't want them to like upset the tone and make it like less serious than it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, like and, those and two in particular are constantly mugging and making faces and doing voices and like improving off each other and you can tell the two of them like really got on and had good chemistry. And like, you know, you can see a pitch where it's like, what if those two were the killers? <laughs> like how zany would that be? But yeah, Skeet is is like full on just intense face at all times. <laughs> He kind of gets into the comedy. He does in that by last the end act. of it. Yeah, that that final scene works really well. But yeah, you can kind of see when they're hanging out, and you've got Matthew Lillard like sticking his tongue out while Skeet <laughs> Rick is just just deadpan the whole time. But yeah, I mean, I can see how it's a difficult thing, and like there was a lot of back and forth with like, well, is this a comedy or is this a horror? And that like changed the age rating. Is NC seventeen higher than R? Yes, NC seventeen right. is higher than R. R so rating it... just means that like if you're older than uh, I don't even know what the age rating is, but like you can still go to an R movie with an adult if you have right. an escort, I believe. Okay. So we're probably looking at a 15 versus an 18. Yeah, pretty okay. much. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's submitted as a comedy and gets rated as an 18 or, or, or an, an NC-17. And then they're like, no, it's a horror. And then they lower it. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. Funny how the censorship board works there. Yeah, I mean, it, it was fun watching it because we got to see it on a 35mm print on, on Thursday night, me and a friend, in a packed cinema in the, mm. the run-up to Halloween, and, like, I always thought it was a 15, but no, like, the, the big BBFC 18 rating coming up the top of the movie mm. was... It was very stabby. <laughs> very stabby. <laughs> yeah, and, and we'll talk about another thing that is special about Scream in a minute, but before we do that, we should probably should do some more... Exploring of 1996, our last stop in 1996, so it is released in December. Again, like, a, ta- a calculated risk. Like, the only stuff that comes out in December is obviously family-friendly stuff. And they're like... Or, like, always Oscar movies. It's like, yeah, either, yeah, either yeah. an awards bait movie coming out in the run-up in between Christmas and New Year's, or yeah. you're kid-friendly. Yeah, and they take this risk that, like, well... We'll be running unopposed if we release a horror movie in December as opposed to like October, November, you know, September if you want to get in there a bit early. And it pays off because on a budget of $15 million, it makes $173 million. So Benjamin, while we're talking money, why don't you talk us through both this film's opening weekend and what were the highest grossing movies of 96? Yeah, so 1996, Scream gets in at number 15 at the end of the year, which considering this has uh, an R rating is obviously like, again, any movie that is like R-rated, NC-17 rated, manages to crack the top 20 is always going to be an impressive feat just because you are cutting yourself off the legs in terms of like who can actually go see it. But in terms of the top 10, you've got Independence Day, Twister, Mission Impossible, The Rock, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Ransom, a movie that... Shit. Like of all of these so far, Nut is the one that exists the least. Uh, <laughs> 101 Dalmatians, The Nutty Professor, Jerry Maguire, and Space Jam. Like it, again, it's one of those like you can see it's it's a mix of like family friendly stuff or it's like big action movies or like in the case of Jerry Maguire, just coasting off of the the star power at the center of it. And yeah. then, God, Ransom feels so random <laughs> in comparison to everything else in there. 
it does. Yeah, like, you know, this is a kind of, not a last hurrah, but kind of like, oh, not even really a rebirth, but it's like 96 was a huge year for like big blockbuster action movies and you are starting to move towards the end of the era of the movie star. Tom Cruise, one of the last ones, really. And then, like, you know, you hit the sort of mid 2000s, noughties, whatever you want to call them, and it's just like, ah, whatever. It's it's the franchise that does it it's, now. It doesn't matter who like, we put in it. Like, <laughs> Ransom is being greenlit off the fact that it's got Mel Gibson in it. Like, yeah. there's no other reason why that movie gets made. In, in the same way that, like, The Rock is being. Michael Bay does not have the power to, to get The Rock greenlit. That is being not based at that point, the, no. You know, you've got Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, and, and Ed Harris. Is, like, again, it's, it's these movies that nowadays movies get based. Uh, movies get greenlit based on, like, what their IP is or what the, the pitch is. And very rarely is a movie build as, like, this actor is starring in this movie and that's the reason why it's getting made. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, they and, do try and get famous people to shove in it, but it's not like let's go see the new Tom Cruise movie or, or whatever. Uh, it's, it's the same thing with, like, I mean, and like, they're referencing something that's happened very recently. Like, you look at, they're not making a Mario movie because <laughs> they want Chris Pratt to play Mario. They just wanted someone famous to play Mario. And so they got Chris Pratt. Yeah, it's almost gone too far the other way now, where it's like, especially for animation, it's like, right, let's just overpay a bunch of celebrities who are mediocre at voice acting. Yeah, I mean, you know, the guy that voices Mario should not be delivering lengthy sentences. <laughs> But no, still. <laughs> but but also there is a brand that exists for Mario, and Chris Pratt is not that brand. No. Yeah. In terms of opening weekend for this movie, obviously this movie has got stupid long legs. Yeah. Um, I have to imagine this is being being buoyed by word of mouth and whatnot. Wasn't um, it playing opens... like into like August of the following year, something like that? I think so. I think yeah. it was playing for a very long time. But yeah, it opens number four at the box office that week at $6.3 million. Behind what, one new entry, Beavis and Butthead, $20 million since the opening weekend. Mm. A, a crazy amount of money for Beavis and Butthead, but I guess that's like the, the peak of their popularity. MTV is, generation, is, baby. Yeah. <laughs> number two is Jeremy Maguire in its second week. Number three is the live-action 101 Dimensions in its fourth week. And wrapping up the top five, you've got one fine, fine day, uh, six million dollars again a movie that in comparison to the rest of that top five just does not exist nowadays <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean as you say like scream it has a couple of boosts like it, it opens it opens even wider in april of the next year i'm not sure what the reason is but that bumps it back mm. up to the top 10 but it keeps on just keeps on like hanging around and hanging around and hanging around so obviously like i don't know if like they'd announced a second one would be coming out so they released the first one wider again or like one of the stars like maybe uh, i don't know did neve campbell had another have another big film out or something i don't know i mean when does scream scream 2 in comparison comes out in december so it's a, it is a year later it's not kind of the october season but they keep it in cinemas for seven months so i guess mm. it's just it's just doing the money and like obviously there's yeah. there's demand for it but it, it, yeah. it keeps on going up to like a thousand cinemas every five weeks or so which is yeah. crazy and just not the kind of legs you get in in 2010s 2020s world nowadays yeah so, I mean, part of what contributes to its financial success and part of what makes it different beyond, you know, beyond bringing back the slasher, beyond acknowledging that horror movies exist, beyond all the pop culture stuff that is in this movie, which we will talk about, they hired famous people, which sounds like a layup, given how things go these days, where you want to just stuff it full of names. Horror movies didn't have famous people in them. People became famous coming out of horror, they escaped horror, Jamie Lee Curtis, etc. Um, obviously she does dip her toes back in, but... I mean, as they say very famous in the movie, like, Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't get naked until after she does... Have, yeah. Like, after she's out of the horror movie thing, like, her, her one of her first big yeah. 
roles is where she gets naked. Yeah. But in horror, she is always the yeah. the coquettish virgin. Yeah. Like, for one thing, you want to keep your budget really low, so you aren't going to go and give big famous actor twenty million dollars to be in it. Um, probably less true today. But uh, for another, they tend to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, even the good ones are a little bit campy. You know, you're not going to see the world's best acting, the world's best script writing in terms of dialogue and, and that kind of stuff. So a lot of it is really well constructed as a piece of tension or whatever. But I mean, I mean, is is the, the thing that I was discussing with my friend when we were coming out of this. And it's like all of the horror franchises that have legs mm. have someone who gives a shit yeah. at the centre of them. <laughs> like, like, I think Friday the 13th is kind of the biggest... Anomaly, that. yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's like there's no one involved in Friday the Thirteenth, the first movie that is like pushing it. Like the first Friday the Thirteenth movie doesn't even have Jason in it until the very last moment. I know, and <laughs> as you will get... learn as the trivia of this movie. Yes, and he doesn't even get the hockey mask until the third movie. Yeah, um, it's but... so funny that that is a th- you know like would you classify that as Mandela syndrome? What's it called, Mandela effect or whatever? Yeah, I think, I think it is. It is one of those things where like, everyone forgets that the first Friday the Thirteenth movie is uh, the first uh, is, is Jason's mum. You just you just think of just Jason arriving fully formed in hockey mask with machete, and it's like no, that's that's not a thing for a while. Um, yeah, but but, yeah, but you look at all these, and it's like you've got. Clive Barker does Hellraiser. You've got John Carpenter with Halloween, Wes Craven with Nightmare on Elm Street, Toby Hooper on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. Um, all of these movies have some kind of central horror figure who is well known for like doing this stuff outside of it. And Friday the 13th is the only one that is like, it's got such long legs, but doesn't have a quote unquote auteur mm. at the center of it. Like, but that's the thing is it's behind the scenes people that are yeah. pushing the movies forward. Yeah. Not so much the stars. Yeah. And, and, it was difficult to convince stars to sign up because of, of all of those factors. And something that Scream had going for it is that, yeah, like I said, they hired famous people. And Drew Barrymore was the first person to sign on. She got a hold of the script and she approached them and said, I'd like to be in your movie. And that is, con- you know, is credited with both convincing Craven to, you know, he was very in and out like, constantly. He was very busy. He wanted to produce it, but not direct it and you know then his schedule clears up and and all of this but like hearing that drew barrymore was in convinced him to be to like fully go for it it helps them land other big names and like also like they kill drew barrymore in the first 10 minutes which again if a horror movie has a famous person in it they're probably going to survive (laughs) yes i mean that's the thing is like when you're watching this movie i can only because obviously this movie is now so famous for the drew barrymore section at the start i think that is probably like the biggest pop culture impact of this movie, more so than anything else in it, is yeah. the like. Whenever you see a picture of Scream in like a list of the best movies of the nineties or best horror movies, it's, it's her always, on the phone. It's always her on the phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do they straight up recreate that in one of the scary movies? Is the that... first one, yeah, and it's Pamela Anderson, and he stabs her silicone implant out. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the, and the popcorn explodes, and yeah, all sorts of shit. You know, she signs on to play Sydney, and then becomes too busy but still wants to be in it. And she's like, oh, can I play the girl at the beginning? And they're like, you can't play the girl at the beginning. You're famous, basically. And she's like, no, 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 that would be good. And she's right. Yeah, um, like because everyone, that, everyone... Is, that is the foundation this entire house is built on, is that perfect opening 10-minute scene of the first killing that like establishes how this is all going to go, establishes some of the tone. Like It is a little bit silly. It gets sillier when you meet 
you know, the main group and everything. But, you know, there is a little bit of levity in there and, you know, the, the referencing of other horror movies and stuff. But also yeah, probably like, the, the most actually scary bit in the whole franchise. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the big rug pull that they kind of get you because obviously Drew yeah. Barrymore is probably the most famous person in the cast at this point, maybe yeah. more for tabloid stuff. Because obviously, like, other people are, like, big, but it's like, you don't even have Courtney Cox at the peak of Friends. Like, it's still... The, like the season two to three gap at the moment on, on yeah, the Friends. Well, I don't know. Friends, Friends was pretty big, but oh no, I'm not saying Friends wasn't big. I'm just saying in terms of in terms of it, Friends. That's is how big it will become. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and so like Drew Barrymore, she's all over the trailers. She's obviously all over the tabloids at this point. Maybe not so much for movies because it's yeah. been like 16 years since ET at this point. And like while she's doing things, they're definitely not yeah. on the level that she's going to be again in a few years. Yeah. But yeah, then they kill her off. Yeah, and. It's like if you're going into this movie in 1996, you're like, "What the fuck are they going to do with this?" Exactly. Like, who, like, and obviously, it then does have to go back into what the tropes of a horror movie are. Like that, mm. this is its first rug pull that it gets to do, where it gets to subvert what a horror trope is. But then after that, like we establish Neve Campbell as the as the main character, and mm. the movie kind of is then on rails of following the rules of horror movies. But like, yeah, this first yeah. ten minutes, like you're generally like, "Oh well, at some point in this, she's going to make it out of here." Like, yeah. and when she's like answering the trivia questions you're like okay she's gonna get this right maybe and then get to get to live even though her boyfriend's been like gutted mm-hmm. um and then when she like I mean, the, and the then, you is... know it's gonna be all you know her and sydney's position of her in the police station giving her account and we're gonna find who did this to you casey and all that but nah yeah. <laughs> the, the funniest thing i find about all of this is and again it's in relation to what we said earlier in terms of the killers is that normally these killers are supernatural beings and they're like unstoppable creatures ghostface in these movies does like seven or eight pratfalls oh god yes course. constantly falling getting hit with something and, and staggering tripping on stuff there's clumsy sort of you know a little bit of a wrestle kind of thing he's not some eight foot tall impervious to pain muscle bound monster it's a dude and he even makes like goofy noises in a couple of those falls um i think they actually tone that down a little bit going forward but when you find out who is behind it of course it's like this but yeah i think that's perfect about it that like it, it simultaneously gives it it contributes to that sort of slightly silly comedic sort of black horror tone black comedy tone but it also makes it more scary in a way because it's like this is how it would go like you probably would be able to trip them up briefly but then they would just recover and you know and strangling her for a few seconds makes her unable to call out to her parents and stuff like that and yeah i i I think that is the genius of it is it it swings so hard in one direction but also manages to swing back the other where ghostface does seem like you know it is fucking scary this is just a person who has just broken into their house yeah, like in that, that's the thing is it 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 scratches that itch of like this is a thing that could happen to you. Yeah. Whilst also being patently ridiculous because it is someone just in a Halloween costume. Yeah. It is someone asking you trivia questions on horror movies, which is just a, a ridiculous thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just get these occasional moments of like just <laughs> when she's looking inside the house and you just see Ghostface like running in straight lines between rooms and stuff like that. And <laughs> like 
it's fun because like normally when those kind of jump scares happen in horror movies, they're normally mm. done a lot closer and it's normally like a door frame or something. Yeah. But doing it in like a wide shot where it's just a guy in a black suit like running around, there's yeah. just something ridiculous about it that makes it funny. I think um, it yeah, I mean obviously he's not that stealthy, but like that is a I don't know. I mean a lot of these monsters do just appear from that, you know, monster closet as a concept. As a video game term, but like which Ghostface doesn't really do. Like, no, exactly. On, like quite often he's just kind of like ambling around or like you can tell the the mm. route that he would have made to get to a certain location. Yeah, it and, feels like how a real person would go about creeping up on someone and like he's he's not going to just shrug off a gunshot, but he is probably going to creep up on you in a in a in a silly but clever way and yeah just also like remember the days where you could have a trailer of a movie basically just be a couple of minutes of the opening kind of like it's basically the opening scene is the trailer from memory they just take out you know the gore and it's like boom sign me up i'll go see that and nowadays you have to give away your whole movie and all of your big money shots and everything and people on youtube have broken down every easter egg in 10 seconds kind of thing yeah I mean, um, I mean, again, like this, this opening scene is is so tense. Like being in a yeah. cinema and watching this with an audience that obviously knew all the like twists and turns, which I think like we've discussed movies that we've seen in the cinema up to this point in a movie series. But there's something joyous about watching a movie mm. on like the 25th anniversary where everyone is kind of like on board with it and knows what's going to happen. So people are laughing at the foreshadowing and stuff yeah. like that. But like you could still hear like a pin drop during a lot of this. Yeah section of the movie and then it obviously ends with like the most over the top and like one of the goriest moments of the movie when they like disemboweled and had hunger from a tree yeah. but like it's done in that like uber 90s like shaky cam like there's like the the sped the i don't know the filter that's gone over the camera or whatever it is is then mm. running up to it and the lightning flash and all the rest of it yeah it's, it's a fun mesh of like this is serious because someone's dead but also like we're not taking this 100 seriously no and like even even like her hanging up on him a few times before it actually gets into the serious business and him basically trying to like horny dial her almost (laughs) before it becomes clear oh i'm gonna kill you kind of thing and it's like you know this is a generation you know teenagers do crank calls and like when 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 sydney gets called and she's like yeah okay randy what the fuck ever and it's like no one takes that aspect of it seriously and i think the casting of Roger L. Jackson as the voice of Ghostface, the only person to be in every screen property, uh, including the TV show, is great. Like it's an it's a slightly unorthodox voice for this kind of thing. It's not like a full on creepy thing. He just sounds like a guy, but there's like a level of like I don't know. It sounds it's not like the Hannibal Lecter so intelligent they're creepy thing they're not a complete doofus it's not a growly horror voice it's just it sounds like a guy who's like a little bit creepy and I just, I just scroll down to see what other credits he's got he's got a lot of video credits and then I get to the bottom and see two Call of Duty games I'm like oh who's he playing a Call of Duty Ghostface Ghost <laughs> yes Call of Duty puts all the horror people in now um, I love that so he's on set they never, no other member of the cast meets him, so they can never associate a voice with a face, so that their their reactions are a little bit better. He's on a phone to them, and allegedly, at one point, they forgot to disconnect the phones, or, or like, I don't know how they would do it without doing that, but uh, the police show up, because there is a man telling someone he's going to kill them down the phone, and I assume all of those urban legends about there are certain words, if you say them on the phone, the NSA records your call, are true. So yeah, they, they learned a lesson there and did it slightly different. I don't know if they like 
essentially use walkie-talkies or, or something. But yeah, they, they maybe it's like the, maybe you call like a, a third line or whatever it is, but like you can still connect to the internal house phones or whatever. So he's just on yeah. another. Or yeah, phone. maybe it's like yeah, there must be some way to. There must have been an early version of like conference calling within your own house kind of thing they must have done um yeah it's very funny but yeah he is the sort of the secret source of all of this in the background is, is that voice um but yeah that opening scene perfect and and yeah just just really really good um yeah, i mean it's, it's it sets the tone but like it doesn't quite tip its hat yet at no. being a comedy movie like no. which i think is like an impressive feat because like it it does take a while for you to kind of like suss out that the movie is being intentionally funny and i can imagine that being like a mm. turn off to critics at the time where it's like i don't understand what this movie's going for and again as you say there's all these people who are like being shown this script and they're going like i don't i don't understand it like yeah. you, you've come to sam Raimi to come do this movie and you're like yeah, it's funny like Evil Dead. It's like it's not funny like Evil Dead because <laughs> Evil Dead is patently goofy. Like mm-hmm. whereas this movie is not goofy. It's metatextual and self-referential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know, just to to finish up the thought point a few minutes ago about getting famous people, like you know, you get Drew Drew Barrymore to come in and do that like exemplary first scene, and then you know you sign up Neve Campbell. You, you get Courtney Cox, who's desperate to play a bitch, to, to sort of count, contrast Monica, and she gets one. Uh, one of the many roles that Elizabeth Berkeley was denied due to Showgirls. Fuck Hollywood. David Arquette as Dewey. He was asked to read for Billy, I think, and then Dewey was originally written as a more, like, butch character, and then Wes Craven just kind of liked his sort of slightly softer take on it, and... Uh, yeah, he gets he gets that role. Jamie Kennedy as Randy. Seth Green, of course, auditioned for that. Skeet Ulrich as Billy Loomis, cast because he looks like a young Johnny Depp in uh, specifically a Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Matthew Lillard as Stu, who just goes accompanies his girlfriend to an audition for a different film and is spotted by the casting director for Scream and invited to audition and gets it. Rose McGowan as Tatum Riley. Henry Winkler goes uncredited at his own request to not sort of steal, like, spotlight from the young actors. Um, and then they get Lee Schreiber to do a, like, 10-second cameo, and then he's, like, a major character. Well, sort of, some of the other movies. But yeah, like, obviously that's not, like, a murderer's row of talent, but for horror, that is quite an impressive list of gets. Like, admittedly, it's... a lot of them are coming from TV or whatever, as opposed to movies, but... Yeah, it's a lot of people at the start of their career, but it's all people who've kind of had hits in the run-up to this, because obviously, like, yeah. Skeet Ulrich and Neve Campbell were both in The Craft, like, yeah. the same year as this. Yeah. Um, so it, it's that interesting thing where it's like, again, it is, it's people who are early on in their careers, but they've all got something that you can pin their name to and they're all vaguely recognisable, Yeah. Um, which again makes it much more impressive. But again, like it's it's that thing where Drew Barrymore is probably the most famous. Courtney Cox is presumably doing this in between season two and season three of Friends. Yeah. Probably is like the second biggest, which is why she kind of gets her own plot line. Like, yeah, Gail kind of... <laughs> I don't say she feels out of place, but like... There's definitely, like, her story going on separately to the teen slasher movie, almost, and she's almost sort of just bumbling into them. Yeah, and yeah like, like, it, she, it, she famously marries David Arquette. I, I don't know, I guess coming out of the second one or something, and, and she becomes Courtney Cox Arquette for a number of years. They are sadly divorced now, I think they are still good friends, but... 
yeah, that worked out very well for one David Arquette. Asked to read for a teenager and secures the leading, sort of, in theory, the leading big manly man role and gets a wife out of it. But yeah, like, yeah. And I, I think another thing that played a factor is that is quite a number of, of female characters as well. Um, and I think this movie had an appeal to women in, in the way that a lot of horror movies don't because a lot of horror movies are, oh, look at the tits and, and stuff like that. I mean, that's the thing. Is that obviously horror is well known for the final girls trope uh-huh. at this point. Like horror movies, more often than not, are where young female actresses can get a, a starting point in Hollywood. Heather, Heather Langenkamp is, is first built in Nightmare on Elm Street. Jamie Lee Curtis is first built for for Halloween. Mm-hmm. There's that whole trope of like, if you normally at the end of a horror movie, you're going to have a woman be still alive, scorning Weaver and aliens, another one that's yeah, obviously a huge part of it. But quite often they are like. Either the other female characters are that over-sexualized kind of bimbo thing, mm-hmm. or they are the only female character in the cast. In the case of like Alien, where like there is yeah. another female actress, but like Sigourney Weaver is the only one who really gets time to to shine in that movie. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Rose McGowan in this movie is kind of that. It, it's weird because obviously, like that's the, the whole trip is like we'll get the over-sexualized one, although she never really has a yeah. In a lesser movie, sex- she's the one that like is getting her tits out and is having sex with Matthew Lillard halfway through or something. But, and like, you know, you do have Sydney saying some big breasted girl running for the stairs when she should be going for the door and all that. And like, you know, you do have some famously chesty women in this movie, but like they don't, I mean, you know, she's walking around in her little outfits, but they're not really like leering at her. Like yeah. You're not, you're not watching this movie for the titillation. Like no. it, it, it hews away from that quite yeah. smartly. She's just, you know, she's a, perky teenager <laughs> and she she's good in it like she you kind of forget her with time a little bit other than she gets like sliced in half in a door or whatever but like her role is like slightly meatier than you might expect and like she does get some like funny little lines and, and she has really great chemistry with Lillard and then she she's she's fun as well but yeah I mean you know you've got all of these female characters and you have guys that are like a little bit more effeminate for the most part, other than than Skeet Ulrich. Like, you know, Jamie Kennedy and Matthew Lillard are sort of doofuses, and then David Arquette, you know, <laughs> he's like the, the the grown man in the film, but even he is like emasculated with his story of like, you know, the reveal that he is Tatum's brother. And it's like, you know, mom said, when I'm wearing this badge, you treat me like a man of the law, and like answering the phone after the killer's already hung up and sitting there with an ice cream cone with his like pencil thin mustache like all really really good stuff and i think that does help like to not have it be just like we're manly men and these are like cannon fodder bimbos except for the one woman that will survive and i think that helps with its wider public appeal and helps with its legs and its legacy and all of that good stuff yeah i mean is, so, in terms of this movie, is there... I mean, obviously, we've kind of, like, touched... we spent a long time on this opening mm. sequence. The the opening is, is like, the one. And, and you know, yeah, they, yeah. they do a 42-minute the... closing scene, and then everything in the middle is not bad, but incidental. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, what's, what's your favourite of, kind of, the, the kills in the middle of the movie before we get to the, the final finale, essentially? Well, I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the only kill there's only one kill there's only is, one kill, is Henry there? Winkler who fucking is doing his hair and he has the leather jacket in the closet so again you know they're not even just playing with horror tropes although he does bump into Wes Craven as janitor Fred wearing the Freddy Krueger jumper <laughs> 
I do like that. So, like, you know, he, he unsuccessfully tries to kill Sydney twice, once in her house. You know, so we've set up the rules in the first kill scene, and then we're going to try it again with the protagonist who will live. And as I said, she makes that comment about, obviously you run out the front door, you don't go up the stairs. And then she is forced to go up the stairs because of how it's all worked out and everything. What I actually appreciate about the, the second attempt in the bathroom and then the killing of the principal, Ghostface kills people in daytime, which mm. isn't a common thing. Um... Or, or will strike in the daytime, and that bathroom one especially, because we get like an extended Sydney overhearing girls gossip about her mother, who was like the town pariah and, and all of this stuff, and it's all very, she's the daughter of you-know-who kind of thing. And then after that's played out, oh, Ghostface is here, by the way, he's coming for you, and like she runs out the door and then he doesn't follow. So I appreciate that about it. Yeah, I mean, the only real kill is, is the Henry Winkler one, which is kind of funny in its own way. Winkler, a weird little role here. Of... It's like the, the bit where he, like, strokes Sydney's, is it face? Or... <laughs> yeah, he, like, cops her chin. It's yeah, like, what are you every, doing? Everyone in the theatre was, like, howled at that moment. It's just because it's just so skeezy. And, yeah. like, it, it's that... Because it kind of feels like there's more to this character that maybe got left on the cutting room floor. Because, obviously, mm. he is very much, like, that when when those two guys are wearing the ghost face costume and like he expels them in two seconds, it kind of feels like he's going for that puritanical kind of thing. And you're going to have some kind of, yeah. he's actually sexually abusing people, but then it's like, no, he's just killed fairly unceremoniously. In the middle and of like, just, just to kind of inject some tension into the, yeah. the middle stretch. And he's like appalled by what they're doing. And then he's like putting the costume on and looking in the mirror and go, boogity boo. Kind of thing. Um, he was actually killed because one of the producers noticed there was a half-hour stretch where nobody dies, so they killed him off. And then they also used that as an excuse to get some of the people away from the party at the end, because, oh, the principal's died, everybody, let's go look, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, very weird, and, like, he's saying over the announcer, like, remember, your principal loves you, <laughs> and stuff like that. It's a very strange character, but... It like... is, and it's, it's kind of in that, like, window in between him playing the Fonz and, like, the his kind of comedy comeback in the 2000s, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, where he's all just constant sort of sad pastiches of himself, like the anti fonds almost in, like, you know, The Water Boy, and then he'll get that recurring role in Arrested Development a few years later and all of this sort of stuff. Like, and unafraid to damage his own reputation, I will say that for him. Um, the thing is, like, he, he's he's leaned into it now, and now obviously he's... Has he won multiple Emmys for, for Barry. Barry at this point? Uh, yeah, I think at least one, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's fantastic in Barry, for sure. I mean, he's, he's, he's a great presence, and obviously he's very self-aware, and the kind of perfect casting for this movie, yeah. even if... Perfect casting for this movie in terms of his self-awareness, not in terms of his, like, horror bona fides. It's not like no. they've cast <laughs> someone who was famous for doing horror movies in the 70s or 80s. Like, this isn't like they've managed to get the, the actor who plays Freddy Krueger to mm. play the principal. Yeah, I mean, Linda Blair is in the movie as one of the many reporters, which is yes. fun, and, and you have stuff like that. And I, and I did you catch the subtle, clueless uh, shout-out? It's yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really, Alicia? Yeah, but, like, most of the middle of the movie is this kind of weird teen hangout almost. <laughs> we just have this cast of young, good-looking people. It still it does a good job of injecting tension and kind of like, it's all around, well, Billy Loomis can't have done it because his phone phone wasn't there. Yes, like, and, so... and, you know, like, they acknowledge the, the, the trope of a red herring and, 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 and stuff like that. Jamie Kennedy's character says it out loud, but, like, Billy is obviously, if you're brand new to it, 
he is the first person you're like, well, it's obviously him. Like, he, like, appears at her window. He is constantly looking incredibly intense and creepy. He is, like, pressuring her about sex and being like, oh, it's been a year since your mum died. Jeez, why aren't you over it? <laughs> but they immediately oh, yeah. are like, oh, it can't be him. We'll rule him out straight away so that they can then just come back to him. And it's like, oh, of course it's fucking him. <laughs> yeah, like, but I, I, I do love, like, the, the two... The conversation he has with Sydney, where, mm. like... After he's been arrested and let free, and he sat there going like, "When are you gonna like get over the fact that your mum died?" <laughs> and like, and eventually like worms her around into going like, "No, he's right. <laughs> I, I should get over my mum dying and have sex with him." He does neck her into sex, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, like, and, that, like, my my partner was watching it and was and did literally say like, "Oh, it's obviously him." And then like after they'd like ruled him out, quote unquote. It was like, well, even if he isn't the killer, he's the real monster here. <laughs> when he was, you know, with all the sex stuff. And it's like, oh no, he's both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then obviously you get like the the other kind of like obviously like there's all the tension that's being built in the attempted murder scenes. But like I think the two most effective are kind of like setting up the tone and also setting up the kind of the final reveal of the movie is the scene in the video store with Kennedy, Lillard, and Ulrich, where, like, Jimmy Kennedy and Matthew Lillard are just having, like, a really enthusiastic conversation about who it could be, and then Ulrich arrives, and all of a sudden, like, <laughs> Matthew Lillard shifts from being Jimmy Kennedy's friend to being, like, the yeah. muscle in the background. I know, because is... he, he is a big guy. Like, he, he's lanky and stuff, so he doesn't seem like he's intimidating, but he is, he is a big dude. And, like, when he's, like lifting an admittedly very tiny Rose McGowan up with, like, the greatest of ease and stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're a big guy. I can see how you're the killer. Um, and I love that Randy correctly labels both of them at different points in the movie. It's like, it's obviously Billy. And then he also, like, jokingly says that it was that it was Stu as well. But yeah, like, you know, Jamie Kennedy having, like, almost a breakdown in the store as he's yelling out and stuff and... and, and verbally establishing the dad as the as the red herring and all of that sort of stuff and then yeah creepy billy just standing behind them kind of thing. <laughs> yeah and you know you do have the whole like oh you know he was in jail when the killer struck again so it can't be him and then sid does come back to who did you call from jail <laughs> kind of thing and it, i don't think it was him because he needs the voice modulator and they just <laughs> presumably would not let him have it in prison because we do end up with the with the reveal of there are two killers which resolved a debate that uh, the writer had of like is it scarier if the villain has no motive whatsoever and it's just a guy who likes killing people or do you need a really satisfying narrative reason for it to all tie together in a bow and you basically give one to each of them with with Matthew Lillard's heroic line of peer pressure when asked why why he's into it. I mean, that, so that's, I mean, that's the most fascinating thing about this movie is I feel like in lesser hands, this movie becomes a real nihilistic, depressing mm. kind of movie. Like, I feel like there's enough horror movies where, like, it's just a guy randomly killing and mm. like, it, it becomes this, like, exercise in nihilism. Yeah. And this movie kind of like threads that needle of it being both. I mean, obviously yeah. there's still questions going around saying like, what, if they're killing random people, why is Lillard perfectly okay with them killing his girlfriend? But they're not, like, though. They're killing Stu's ex-girlfriend. Yeah, so that's is... the thing. Is like, I, I, like, so, so, yeah, I understand they kill Stu's ex-girlfriend and her current boyfriend. They go after... The principal. Sid, the principal. <laughs> Sydney, I understand in terms of the fact that like that is just Billy that's Loomis being game, blue. Yeah. Yeah, that's Billy Loomis being blueballed, and also the end game of like the whole thing with his his mum leaving and 
yeah, yeah. All, all the rest of it. But like, it's it's Tatum that feels the outlier. I... Is, is it is it just because she was in, instrumental in Billy going to prison and like kind of like disrespecting him? I guess because I mean they there's no official account of of who was wearing the costume at any given time, but I think Skeet Ulrich has said that Billy is the one that kills Tatum rather than um, Stu killing his own girlfriend. But who knows? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's the way I read it as well. But then it's just as I said earlier. Like, I assume he just sees her as a loose end, and like she could probably figure out it's Stu if you give her enough time, kind of thing. Probably. Or maybe but, yeah, he's planning just, to like, turn on Stu or something. I don't know. And yeah, obviously it makes the movie busier if like Stu goes into the garage and then sees his dead girlfriend and goes like, "That was never part of the plan." Yeah, and then you've got Ghostface versus Ghostface. <laughs> yeah, like again, that makes it too complicated. Maybe she was always on the end of it because it's like, well, we need to kill everyone who's left at this party, which is why they go after Jamie and, and everyone like that. So yeah, yeah. It, it's and, just that weird yeah. moment where it's like she is the one that there's not really like a mm. a track to like why they kill her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do like that Jamie Kennedy acknowledges like oh, he says like there's always a bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend, and if you make it too complicated, you lose your target audience. It's like yeah, they just kill people. Like Matthew Lillard just is is into it, and all of his ad libs in that like the scene with the reveal in the kitchen is my fa- that's the reason I think the movie's on the list for me personally. I mean the the opening ten minutes is perfect, but. One of my favourite scenes of all time is the big reveal in the kitchen with them stabbing each other and explaining it and the phone is all bloody and, like, are they going to kill each other while she just watches? And just Matthew Lillard ad-libbing over and over again with, you know, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me and Houston, we have a problem and I always had a thing for you, Sid, and stuff like that. Um, just being a hero and, like, you know, like loitering over Billy's shoulder and... Um, just those two boys sitting there, and like he's just like, yeah, we're just fucked up, man. And even he doesn't realize why Billy is in on it. And then Billy dropping the thing of like, you know, his dad cheated on his mum with uh, Sydney's mum. So yeah, would you like? Uh, how precious are you about spoilers for future movies? Uh, almost not at all. Okay, so the killer in Scream Three is Sydney's long lost brother. And he discovered the infidelities and he showed Billy footage of that affair. So he set off all of the killings by coming to, t- you know. So it's that thing of like, ah, oh, you ruined it. You tried to make it too cute and, you, <laughs> and you, you've taken an inferior character and used them to ruin a better character. <laughs> This is, I mean, that's the first one that isn't written by Kevin Williamson, right? Yes, yeah. He, does he comes back for four, which is why four is, is better than three. But three is the one that the whole thing's on a movie set. Her long lost brother is the director of the movie, by the way. And he fakes his own death and then is revealed as the... That's the only one as well. Well, there's only one killer. All the other ones, there's two people to mirror the first one. And you've got, like, Billy's mother in the second one is one of the killers. I think Sydney's cousin, played by Emma Roberts, is is one of the killers in the fourth one because she's jealous of all the attention Sydney got as as the only survivor. And her see those feel in the same vein where it's like Billy's yeah. mum makes sense. That tracks as a motivation off the end of the first movie. Yeah, obviously we don't know Sydney's cousin, but like also like that feels like the kind of thing that you do in a reboot where like it yeah. feels like the most tangential bullshit reason to do it. But like. Yeah. retconning the first movie into being in, like yeah. being orchestrated by someone else yeah. 
feels a step too far. Yeah, exactly. And and her cousin's collaborator in the fourth one is they have two characters who are like best friends who are like a facsimile of or a stand-in is, is it for Jamie Kennedy. Yes, the horror movie fan does the kill. Yeah, right. one of the Jamie Kennedy stand-ins is is the mastermind, and then she turns on him, and she just wants to kill everybody and frame everybody. I can't remember who the second killer is in the second one. That's the one where you said like they had seven possible options. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, they they go off the rails. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, but yeah, um, that kitchen scene is perfect. Like that entire final scene, that 42-minute party scene, took them, like, three weeks to film because they had to film at night time. And, like, in the background of this, you've got, like, Dewey and Gale... <laughs> like, Gale manipulating Dewey. Yeah, like, Gale using her, like, older woman feminine wiles to try and seduce information out of Dewey. And then Dewey going for it and actually sort of charming her a little bit. It's kind of cute as they wander off together and, you know, they'll wander back in and, and help kill the killer and all of that. And at one point Dewey was supposed to die, but he tested well with audiences, so they had him live. <laughs> like, Wes Craven at the last minute filmed a scene with him being taken to an ambulance instead of a body bag, I assume. The thing that, my favourite two sections is in this, in this extra long sequence are obviously like, I mean, well, first of all, I do love Tate and Riley's death. Yes, it is ridiculous. Ridiculous, iconic. Like she can't fit through the doggy door because her tits are too big. <laughs> Whereas in real life, she was so skinny that she kept falling out of the doggy door, so they had to like affix her to it, which is depressing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then gets her head crushed in between the like the mechanism. And, and the, you were see like I, I'm sorry, I don't think a garage door could take the weight of a human, and I think there's probably some kind of safety measure in there to stop it from. Oh, one hundred percent. All of these things would stop immediately the moment there was any kind of friction and just go back down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I love like you know to return to Ghostface being kind of goofy when she's like, "Oh, do you want to play Psycho Killer?" and he just nods. And, and like there, there is without him ever speaking while in the costume he might speak while in the costume in later ones I don't know but in this movie certainly the, the voice is always over the phone and he's mute when he's except for when he goes Ooh! when he gets hit with something but him standing there and nodding and like blocking her off and there is a surprising amount of personality to this mute serial killer guy and, and her being like oh please I want to be in the sequel and yeah just all of that pastiche stuff in this actual sequence, there were two out outcries in the middle of the in the middle of the whole party sequence that made me laugh so hard. Mm. One was when Gail crashes the the the, police, the <laughs> when Gail crashes the TV van into the fence, uh-huh. and someone just shouted out in the audience, going like, "Why is she so fucking dumb?" <laughs> well, she acknowledges her name is Gail Weathers, and she sounds like a meteorologist. <laughs> um... uh, yeah, it's just. I mean, obviously that's because Randy's just stood in the middle of the the road, isn't it? At that point, yeah, yeah, she yeah, crashes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the second one was in the middle of the sex scene between Sydney and and Billy, where my friend turned to me and said, he raped her mum <laughs> in the most, like, forlorn way I've ever heard. <laughs> he raped her mum. Yeah. I mean, on a more, like, serious note, I do really enjoy the, the tape delay mechanism there, where, like, mm. we see... I think the only scene where Skeet Ulrich is wearing the the costume because he he begs them to let him wear it once is when he's creeping up on Randy, while Randy is like saying, "No, Jamie, look behind you," and then we see that play out in the van, knowing he's had thirty seconds to move since then, and he's like right there. 
I do really like that. And and the rules scene is fantastic, like with them all like booing him for saying you can't have sex or do drugs or anything. And it's like these are things that people were talking about before. But to have it fully acknowledged within a big movie like this that oh, isn't it funny that this is what always happens, mostly. Um is really good. And then Matthew Lillard's like, I'll be right back. It's like, yeah, good, good stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, and then all culminating with them, st like, <laughs> accidentally stabbing Matthew Lillard too much to the point he's, like, really fucked up. Um, and then, like, you know, Sydney turning the tables on them and running him through with an umbrella. And you even get the, the like, oh, this is when they come back to life for one last scare. And then they just headshot him to death immediately. That's, that's the thing that's like, it, it, not the thing that takes me out, but I, I can't imagine someone reading this script mm. and getting to this point in the movie where like, yeah. one of the killers has been stabbed too many times and is like bleeding out, yeah. or like you've got like someone being stabbed by it by an umbrella, and just like the amount of like re reversals in this final section is so comical that like. I just, I just can't imagine you take it seriously. Like when the yeah. final culmination is the dad collapsing out of the out <laughs> of the closet, it's like the, it's going so far into yeah. being comedy. And it, I don't. It is funny because like that entire kitchen sequence, it's like it is my favorite scene. It simultaneously breaks the movie in some way because it's like I every time I watch this now, there is no tension whatsoever because I know it's those two fucking dipshits who are going to stab each other in the kitchen later. <laughs> But it also is just so good. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Like, they're just oozing with charisma. And, like, I don't know. And it, it does sort of go out into the weeds a little bit with, like, Billy actually recovering when it's, like, we were talking about how it's not a supernatural person. And, like, that's the closest it gets is him, like, surviving, being shot and stabbed and all of this stuff. And then he does, like, wake up for one last scare and then just gets shot to death. Yeah. One thing we haven't mentioned... The score is very strange. <laughs> I don't hate it. I don't love it. It is. It does have a cult like appreciation. Is that like it's not really scored like a horror movie typically is. You have all this sort of. I don't even know how to describe it. Like noisy, grungy, sort of melodramatic overtones while they're just trying to have a conversation. Like it's like why have you put this in here? I can barely hear them at points. But you know, it's it's part of the film's legacy. But yeah. Just See, like it, the movie is kind of aware of it, as he said, like they straight up are using the Halloween score. <laughs> yeah, why bother writing a score for the end when you can just leave Halloween playing in the background? <laughs> just like John Carpenter uh, so, do his thing. So it's Marco Beltrami who mm. does compose a Halloween movie two years after this. Yes, as he said, like in terms of like grungy '90s kind of music, also did the score to Resident Evil with Marilyn Manson. Um, confirmed sex pest. Mm -hmm. um, so like it's obvious that like that's kind of like where his his window is when he's doing these kind of horror movies, and it feels like it's more of a precursor of where horror goes in the new millennium. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like we've we've said that Scream is kind of like the big revival in the slasher horror, the slasher film genre. But I also do feel that like a lot of movies are kind of like injecting. Well, we've done so many Earth-based science fiction movies, so let's do. <laughs> space or science fiction so like you get like resident evils and doom and jason i mean your front of her teeth go to space yeah you have like <laughs> that that film is really bad but it does feature a scene where they try and trick him with like a holodeck kind of thing of two sexy teens at a campfire 
and he puts one into a sleeping bag, zips it up, and beats the other one to death with her, and that's just amazing. <laughs> Isn't that's also the one with the famous like where he like freezes someone's face and then yes. like smashes that to death? That's the other like yeah. famous kill from that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so no. said, like. It feels like I don't know whether or not we can say that like Scream gave these movies permission to be funny because I do think so many of these like eighty slasher movies were done tongue in cheek. Like I think they to... were campy though, and I think this is like out and out going for satire and parody and 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 actual like here are some jokes kind of thing. But you've got like the child's play movies at this point in time. There's like Bride of Chucky and Spawn of Chucky, which are like just funny puppet movies. Yeah. Really. It's, I mean, it, it, there's obviously a thing, and there's a film quiz that I do with some friends, and it's a very obvious guys who host it are big horror fans. And there's obviously, like, a thing in your brain when you are a horror fan that, A, makes you, like, very immune to just sheer amounts of bad movies. Because, yeah. like, a lot of horror is bad, and a lot of people who are obsessed with horror movies watch a lot of shit. But there's also, <laughs> like, there's obviously, like, the things that kind of stand out are the campy classics that are funny. Yeah. And, like, they're obviously, like, horror movies can be very funny, and you're, like, more laughing at kills than being scared by them. Yeah, like Jamie uh, Kennedy is when they're all, when they're all crowded, they're all sitting there watching Halloween and they're going, oh, kind of thing. Yeah, which is, which is the flip side of this, which I feel like this is one of the few movies that is both a pastiche, meta treatise kind of like examination of what a horror movie is whilst being funny and also a really effective slasher movie in its own right yeah like like in, in the same way that like cabin in the woods is an effective version of the movie that is trying to be for the first two thirds before it becomes the movie that cabin in the woods becomes it's mm. like it feels like the ones the ones that are going to elevate themselves and become huge like influential pieces of cinema in the genre are the ones that are going to be funny, pastiches, parodies, but also good versions of what they are. It's why the scary movie movies don't work in that way, because they're not horror movies. They're not trying, yeah, they're not trying to be at all. Like, fucking Ghostface gets high with them instead of killing them at one point. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and obviously, like, there's a whole thing, of, like, that is a, a the trend of parody movies at that point, where it's just like, let, what is the... Big thing of the moment. What's the big thing of the moment? But they're not trying to subvert your expectations. They're just like almost like comic sketches, but like yeah. written for people who are going to get high and sit there and watch them with, with <laughs> snacks and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has its cake, cake and eats it, basically. It's yes. both sending it up and actually being a really good, honest to goodness one of them. And like the characters do, I'm not saying they're like smarter than the average horror protagonist, but they do at least make attempts at slightly more sensible exit strategies than most, you know, they're not, like, accidentally running headlong into the killer kind of thing. They are... Like, Casey does evade him for quite a while, um, and I guess only gets got because there's two of them. Yeah, like, it, it is simultaneously smarter and dumber than, <laughs> than, than most horror. And yeah, which is... Which, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it, it thinks of... Here's the ways that horror movies fail. Like again, as as Sydney says, like don't don't run out the front door rather than going up the stairs. Like the movie thinks of ways to to force her up the stairs, and yeah. it's aware of these tropes and these things that it has to do to do it, but also wants to do the trope and do it at the same time. Yeah. And like Scream Two, I think it's the opening scene. It's certainly one of the very earliest scenes. They are what it is a it is a black couple watching Stab in a theater and doing the whole. You know, he's behind you, and you know all that, and then like Jada Pinkett like goes to the bathroom and gets stabbed, or whatever. <laughs> or like, somebody goes to the bathroom and gets stabbed in the in the bathroom of the theater. But yeah, 
that's Scream. A fun time. In theory, kind of an outlier on this list, but actually probably one of my favourites on the whole list. Oh, it's it easily one of my favourites. I mean, I was looking at like the 1996 list, and I think all of the movies we picked, I've given like a, a mm. 9 out of 10 or better. Yeah. Um, it, it, it just a good, a good, fun year at the cinema, and also just fun to dip into a genre that like is not our wheelhouse, but is something no. that we've got appreciation for when done well. Like, I mean, I would yeah. say like gremlins and the thing are in my favorite movies of all time yeah but like obviously they are i'm not i'm not also going out there and going like oh yeah i watched every single saw movie in the cinema like because it's Uh, not i'm not that kind of horror fan it's more like yeah exactly i think we're in the same boat there like i'm not gonna see the conjuring series or the i don't know all of that stuff um is, is no appeal to me whatsoever, but uh, yeah, Scream is a good time. Speaking of things that are sort of outliers on the list and different genres than we normally cover, next week with a pick I am in two minds about because it's a long-time favourite, but also the guy that made it is a piece of shit, which we'll get into next week. Uh, the Fifth Element will be our next episode, uh, and to whet your appetite until then, I have one question for you, Benjamin. Will there be movies? There will, and they'll follow these rules. One, they'll be less than 90 minutes. <laughs> Number two, they will be not directed by sex pests. <laughs> Ideally, yeah. Ideally. Uh, and number three, they'll be good. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I like to watch good movies. Okay, well, maybe we'll watch one next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>